0: Welcome to the 421st of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome medical anthropologist Dania Glabo, author of the forthcoming book, Food Allergy Advocacy, Parenting and the Politics of Care, welcoming her back for her second visit to COVID Calls. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. This is a special COVID Calls episode at 8.30 a.m. Eastern Time. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at calls. Please do help spread the word. And as always, please do send suggestions for future guests and topics and feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline is William Franklin, pioneering allergist, dies at 108. This was written by Craig S. Smith and was published April 3rd, 2020, in the New York Times. William Franklin, one of the top allergists of the 20th century and an indomitable researcher who helped legions of hay fever sneezers by distributing daily pollen counts to the British public, died in April of 2020 in London at age 108. His son, Andrew, said the cause was the coronavirus. He lived in a care home at the historic Charterhouse Complex, a former monastery in London. Dr. Franklin, who was among the world's oldest active scientists, remained remarkably vigorous to the end, despite having come close to death several times in his long life. He was born prematurely, weighing just over three pounds, and he contracted bovine tuberculosis as a child. Later, while serving in the British Army, he spent years as a malnourished prisoner of war in Japanese camps. He had another brush with death when he used himself as an experiment on a biting insect and had an anaphylaxis reaction. Dr. Franklin was best known in professional circles for a number of groundbreaking clinical studies. In 1954, he proved that pollen proteins were the parts of plants most useful in preseason allergy inoculations. And in 1955, he debunked the efficacy of treating asthma with bacterial vaccines. He was an early proponent of using allergen injections to desensitize patients with severe allergies and developed immunotherapy serums for hay fever sufferers with pollen from one of the world's largest pollen farms, which he operated outside of London until the late 1960s. It was while investigating desensitization to insect bites that Dr. Franklin allowed the South American insect Rodnius prolixus to bite his arm at weekly intervals. The eighth bite sent him into life-threatening anaphylaxis, from which a nurse revived him with repeated shots of adrenaline. Alfred William Franklin was born in Sussex, England, on March 19, 1912, one of twin boys of Henry and Alice Rose West Franklin. His mother was a musician. His father, a vicar in the Church of England, moved the family to Britain's Lake District, where the boys grew up surrounded by farms. It was there that William discovered that he suffered from hay fever. He attended St. B's School in West Cumberland before studying medicine at Queen's College, Oxford, and St. Mary's Hospital Medical School, now part of Imperial College, London. After finishing his studies, he enlisted in the Royal Army Medical Corps three days before the outbreak of World War II anticipating that doctors would be needed. He was later sent to Singapore, where he arrived just days before the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. By chance, Dr. Franklin was sent to work in Tanglin Military Hospital in Singapore, rather than the newly opened Alexandra Military Hospital there, thus eluding almost certain death. The Alexandra Hospital was soon overrun by Japanese troops. Dr. Franklin was taken prisoner on February 15, 1942, and spent the remainder of the war in Japanese prison camps. On his return to Britain, he took post at St. Mary's, where he worked with Alexander Fleming, who won the 1945 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for the discovery of penicillin. Mold that had contaminated Dr. Fleming's petri dishes decades earlier and led to the development of modern antibiotics had come, in fact, from the allergy department, which was directly below Dr. Fleming's laboratory. Dr. Franklin correctly predicted that some patients would be allergic to the new wonder drug. Dr. Franklin had a pollen trap installed on the roof of St. Mary's and began distributing daily pollen counts to the British news media in the early 1960s. He was one of the first allergists to do so. Pollen counts are now a staple of weather reports around the world. Dr. Franklin published more than 100 articles and academic papers on allergies, including four that he wrote after turning age 100. Among his many honors, he was named a member of the Order of the British Empire in 2015. In addition to his son, he is survived by his three daughters, Penelope Culverhouse, Jennifer Woodhouse, and Hillary Crewe, ten grandchildren and six great-grandchildren. Before entering Charterhouse, Dr. Franklin had lived alone in a central London apartment that he had shared with his wife, Pauline, until her death in 2002. He cooked his own meals, and though he used a walking stick, followed a routine of daily exercise into his 100s. Given his brushes with death, he was frequently asked what the secret of his longevity was. He would reply simply, luck. The obituary of Dr. William Franklin, who died in April 2020 of COVID-19. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, and let me introduce my guest. Returning for her second time, Danya Glabeau is an STS scholar and medical anthropologist and industry assistant professor and director of the Science and Technology Studies program in the Department of Technology, Culture, and Society at NYU's Tandon School of Engineering. Her research examines health activism, the political economy of biomedicine, and how human bodies become valuable data book, Food Allergy Advocacy, Parenting and the Politics of Care, will be coming out with the University of Minnesota Press in May of this year, and we're going to talk about that book here in a, in a few minutes. And her second book project is titled er, Cyborg, will be coming out with MIT Press, is co-authored with Laura Forlano, and that one offers an introduction to feminist cyborg theory for scholarly, technical, and non-scholarly audiences. Danya Glebo, welcome back to COVID Calls.
1: Hello, happy to be here and we've got an extra guest today, <laughs> the baby that many of you have heard about.
0: <laughs> I I'm really glad that we have uh, an additional expert in the call today.
1: You are an expert, right? <laughs> She's an expert in watching Zoom calls already, that's for sure.
0: <laughs> Children of this generation have coped with So many modifications, right? I mean, we talk about what parents have to do, but I think about what kids have to do watching us, watching us hunkered over a computer, (laughs) staring into a screen. Well, it's been a little while, Donya. It's really good to see you. Thanks for making time to um, come back. start the way I usually do. Where are you calling from and what's it look like there?
1: Yeah, we're in Brooklyn in New York City um, and um, it's looking pretty good. Uh, We have some of our lowest COVID levels in a number of months. Uh, Last Thursday, um, the Wednesday numbers were reported to be under a thousand new cases. So I made a hair appointment for Friday (laughs) I got my hair done for the first time since the start of the overground wave, because who knows how long it's going to last. Um, So um, we're three weeks into daycare. We've been very lucky. We haven't had any COVID exposures yet that we've had the daycare cold cycle um, going through. Um, Let's see what else is going on locally in New York state. uh, The governor is talking about dropping mask mandates Uh, And in fact, I believe they are dropped now for uh, most businesses. Uh, They're not required for patrons, although business, individual business owners can still require them. uh, But it's no longer a requirement of the state. Um, And um, but we still have a lot of people dying. (laughs) Uh, You know, I think uh, I can uh, take a quick look. I have some of the stats up in front of me. So in New York City, um, our daily average of deaths is still looks like it's still in the 30s. And the last day reported, the 18th, Friday, uh, there were 43 deaths reported uh, just in New York City. So um, it definitely feels like the politicians and parts of the political mainstream are moving on. But, um, I, you know, I, I think the the human toll continues and the cognitive uh, load, the, the emotional uh, toll, especially for those of us with young babies and children, um, uh, is really not over yet either. So. Um, there's a lot of, um, a lot of conflicting messages and, and feelings at this moment. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, among other parents of babies and young children, uh, here that I know in, in Brooklyn and New York, I think that's pretty common. Um, and, um, but among, you know, kind of young, young, untethered folks, um, I think, uh, it does feel like it's, it's very much past, you know, the cafes and bars are full again, mm-hmm. um, my students, um, have thankfully been extremely conscientious and helpful, though I think, uh, we are back in person classes. I'm back in person for the first time in almost two years wow. between leave and COVID. Um, and my students have been amazing, conscientious. Um, and, um, you know, we all want to keep each other safe and also continue to have the chance to see each other face to face. Um, so that's kind of what it's like here. It's a lot of, a lot of conflicting messages.
0: Uh, is there is there any friction between Albany and New York City in terms of this mask mandate thing?
1: So, um, uh, so I, I believe Eric Adams, uh, the new mayor's office, is also pushing uh, to drop masks soon. I'm not sure the exact plan, uh, but I know he's talked about wanting to, um, you know, ditch the masks. He hates the mask. You know these these talking points that we're starting to hear come out from a lot of supposedly. Uh, liberals, supposedly following the science, political leaders. Um, uh, On the other hand, he has um, continued to be pretty firm on vaccine mandates for city workers. Um, So um, I believe about 1400 people uh, were officially terminated as of Hmm. the middle or end of last week for not being up to date on vaccines. I don't know. I I would imagine that will be kind of quickly addressed or reversed. Uh, We'll see what happens this month. Uh, or this week. Um, and that's in contrast to, again, the state level where, uh, for example, the governor, Governor Kathy Hochul, um, has walked back some mandates for healthcare workers that would have required all of them to have a booster out of concerns for staffing uh, in um, in some hospitals. So instead of addressing the staffing issues by, I don't know, paying nurses more, oh, um, sure. they have <laughs> dropped the, the very reasonable public health uh, mandates. Um, that are you know in line with other kinds of vaccine mandates that um, healthcare workers have to follow. So um, again, it, it's kind of a mixed bag. I wouldn't say there's conflict between city and state. Uh, maybe some different prioritization, though.
0: Have you been following pretty closely this discussion of vaccine availability for uh, children under five? I mean, it looked like that had a lot of momentum, and then just last week, I think uh, Pfizer. Pulled back on on that, and there's going to be a, another round of studies. I've been trying to follow that as closely as we can from South Korea, but they're not vaccinating children under 11 here, so we're at sort of one level even further removed from that. And with the 10 year old, I'm watching that closely. But what's right. going on with the under fives?
1: Yeah, so my understanding is that the you know the FDA and the CDC started giving signals, sort of unofficial, like get ready, it's coming. Uh, you know, in in January. Um, Saying that um, they were expecting to see some good data out of um, out of Pfizer study, I believe in particular on um, hi, on uh, uh, six months to um, up to five years old. Um, you know, there had already been some signals that the data in the what two to five range was probably not going to be. Um, not going to show efficacy or not going to show strong efficacy. Um, but, uh, the FDA and CDC started signaling that they would probably go forward with approval anyway. I believe the CDC even told doctors one week, you know, get ready. I think February 18th, get ready to, (laughs) to, for vaccines to be on their way. Um, and and so it, they were signaling that they were going to approve the vaccine, even though it was not necessarily demonstrated to be efficacious, which is uh, pretty uh, shocking and, and surprising uh, to anyone who's worked in or, or studied this world, um, really a reversal of how things usually work. I think the expectation was that these studies were with two doses. If they approved them now, they would, um, you know, when when uh, Pfizer would continue the studies with a third dose. And then it was expected that a third dose would show efficacy for the two to fives. Six months to two years, I believe, was already showing decent efficacy. Um, so they could have split up the cohorts and we could have a, a baby vaccine. Um, but, um, you know, that's that's a, a you know, logistical and, and business um, nightmare, of course. So um, they delayed right. the whole approval process until uh, that third shot data. Again, this is, you know, kind of what everyone is is guessing. There hasn't been a, a totally direct statement of what's going on.
0: So when I spoke to you last, I went back and looked September 29th, 2020. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I don't know how much um, stock you put in the numbers anymore. But at that time, Johns Hopkins University was reporting uh, two hundred and 5,268 deaths from COVID in the United States as of that. And and the global total had just crested a million at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess I wanted to sort of catch up with you in a sense. We're going to talk about a lot of things, but um, just how you've been since then. (laughs) And uh, you've been busy, I can see. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) What's the... What stands out for you in that interval of time since September of twenty twenty
1: sure um so September the end of September when we talked this little one was a six week old embryo <laughs> so so this has been the biggest thing uh, that's probably happened um you know I think I think it's been. Kind of an interesting experience having my first kid in a pandemic. You know, I don't have anything to compare it to, um, so there's that. Um, but um, in some ways, it's been kind of a blessing and a curse, and and we keep getting surprises on both the good and the bad sides. I, mean, I think it's been a blessing, and that you know the expectations for getting up and back to regular life have been very low. Um, and anyone who's had a baby, and especially anyone who's breastfed, um, knows that you know the fewer expectations there are, um, the better things tend to go uh, with a young baby. So um, so on the one hand, it's been wonderful. Um, between the timing of when she was born and COVID policies, I got to spend almost nine months um, home with her every single day, uh, which is Unfortunately, not something most people in the United States get to do. Right. Um, so there were definitely some some pros. Um, I think on the con side, and, you know, this kind of relates to my work as well, um, COVID precautions meant that we have not really had any help, right? It's been me and my partner and occasionally um, my mom. Uh, you know, my mom is older, so, um, uh, you know, there's, there's kind of only so much she can do. Um, uh, and so it's, it's been kind of isolating in terms of having help and having any kind of, you know, the classic village to raise a child. Um, you know, there are opportunities to see people outside, go for walks, you know, meet at a playground, but it's not the same as, um, actually getting kind of hands-on help. Um, so, um, so there's certainly been a, a degree of, of isolation, um, but again I've been surprised that at least for us it hasn't been all bad um and part of the reason it hasn't been all bad is that to a certain extent it has made Americans s- slow down right not wow. all Americans and not in all situations um but you know it's it's okay to to say no to things um if you're not feeling up to them or if you're not feeling they're safe in a way that um you know didn't I didn't really feel like the reality before this, at least on New York city. Um, So, so yeah. And, you know, I think, I think also uh, in New York um, we saw the intersection of multiple disasters over the summer. So we live in a neighborhood where we have lots of cultural institutions, a big park, a bunch of small parks, all within about a 20 minute walk. Um, And, um, you know, I had imagined (laughs) that I would spend my maternity leave getting to re-experience all of these things with a baby, right? That didn't happen for the indoor things. Um, But we also, um, you know, were kind of June, July, and the first half of August um, we were um, sort of shrouded in smog every day from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from the wildfires out West. So Mm. it was uh, again, both, um, you know, both a lot of time and ability to sort of bond and slow down, but also just constant re- reminders, not only of the pandemic, but of the climate apocalypse um, that we are current living, currently living through. Well,
0: thank you for sharing those insights about being um, a new parent in this time. I, let me follow up on one part of that. Was, sure. um, was your prenatal care um, adjusted, disrupted? Was it different from how you would have expected it, it would be, or had by that point of the pandemic had it things become a little bit more normal in terms of distance uh, you know telemedicine when necessary and and visits in a, a sort of safe clinical environment by that point <laughs> to the extent that that's possible in covid i
1: don't yes yeah, so I don't know if you if you are remembering uh the uh couple of public freakouts I had about my pre, prenatal care or not, but uh I will say uh so uh initially the first like two months or so two and a half months, um, we were living with my uh, parents' family, with my in-laws just outside of Chicago. And we drove back to New York uh, just in time to kind of start prenatal care around uh, 10 weeks. Um, So, um, so, you know, there was a little bit of a delay to the start uh, of care, but it was still within the window of normal. Uh, I think maybe two of my visits that would have been in person were virtual instead, um, uh, but really very little impact. Um, And in some ways, that very little impact was, uh, you know, really upsetting and stressful. Um, So one visit. um, So I started out with an OB. I ended up working with a midwife group and the turning point was a combination of um, uh, of, of, uh, you know, really sort of. we can get it. That, that's not really relevant to the discussion. Combination of some, let's say, philosophical differences and also um, dissatisfaction with their, their COVID precautions. So mm. on two consecutive visits, the first visit, um, the office, the OB office is being shared uh, with um, some general practitioners because they're renovating a new GP office on a different floor. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first um, visit that was the beginning of the end, I spent an hour waiting in a waiting room next to a middle-aged woman who was coughing uh, and removing her mask every time to cough. And this was in, you know, what, December or January, December 2020 or January 2021. So it's yeah. like not a great time. <laughs> Oh, yeah. To be coughing in public, the worst. Um, and you know, kind of multiple complaints. Oh, we can't get you into a room. Oh, you know, it's it's fine. Our air filtration system is fine. Just a lot of deflection, mm-hmm. um, from the staff, which was, um, really, um, you know, kind of. Really insulting. <laughs> uh, and uh, on a follow up visit, um, the GP office had moved to its new floor. So it was just OB, much quieter, not much of a wait. Um, but then I was sitting in a room waiting for a procedure. Um, and uh, a group of hospital executives came by to see the new office. Uh, and um, they were five or six, you know. Men in suits in their 30s, um, kind of having a great time, taking their masks on and off. They Mm -hmm. brought a catered lunch with them. So they took their masks off. They're eating their catered lunch right outside the room from me. The doctors were hanging out and laughing and eating with them. Uh, And then in the middle of this whole scene, one of them says, oh, it was a Monday morning. One of them says, oh, you know, I tested positive last Friday, but I feel fine now. And I just about walked out. <laughs> so again, that wow. combined with some other, let's say, philosophical differences, um, and that's been my experience of healthcare really in New York. It's, um, you know, I know healthcare workers are putting on a heroic effort, but I think, you know, maybe they are used to the constant presence of COVID in a way that someone like me is not. But there's a lot of, a lot of masks off, a lot of eating, a lot of like sneaking uh, in and out of. Uh, in and out of spaces without masks or without other precautions, kind of hoping patients don't see them. So that's been kind of discouraging.
0: Wow. Um, did they not know there was a medical anthropologist in the room?
1: Apparently they're never aware. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's one of those moments where you're like, you're a human, but you're also like a practice, you're a practitioner of your own art. That's kind of like, uh, guys.
1: Right, me. right, exactly. Yeah, and this is the same with the procedure, right? I mean, clearly, it was about an exercise of power and the ability to, yeah. you know, surveil the workplace of the executives to surveil the workplace of, you know, this office, which in particular is an OB office, was mostly women, many women of color in this particular office as staff and and as patients. Um, it, it definitely felt like a, um, a, a demonstration of power uh, more than anything. I'm
0: going to just remind uh let me just remind everybody that you're listening to COVID calls and I'm talking to Danya Glabo today and Danya, let's catch up. Your book is coming out and sure. we did talk about it um, last time when you were on, but I want to, with this interval of time, I mean, I think the book was, was pretty well done when we talked last time, but there's sure. always, um, you know, COVID refracts. You know, intellectual light in funny ways over time. I wonder how you're seeing it now. Maybe just let set out the landscape briefly. Maybe tell remind you know people who might not know kind of what you're writing about. But then let's let's talk about how your thinking on it may have evolved since since we last discussed it.
1: Sure. Yeah. So my first book, uh, uh, Food Allergy Advocacy, Parenting, and the Politics of Care, it's coming out with the University of Minnesota Press in May. And thank you to all of my colleagues at the at the press for their amazing work on this, and also for their patience as we finish final edits with little one on my lap. Um, But um, so the book comes out of my dissertation research, um, a little bit less than three years of multi sided ethnographic field work comprising interviews, visits to uh, events throughout the United States, um, kind of collection of. Um, media by and for food allergic people, especially food allergic parents. Uh, I even still have a box of uh, by now mostly expired uh, allergy friendly snacks. (laughs) So it was definitely multimodal uh, and multisensory research. Um, And so I started the research kind of Uh, Coming out of my own experience going through the diagnostic process for food allergies in my early 20s, um, kind of with some kind of epistemological questions about how allergists um, know what allergy is and how that differs from the embodied experience of allergy. Um, As I got into the research, um, uh, shadowing clinicians in a couple of different uh, offices, uh, attending a uh, a class for medical residents, a couple other things, some preliminary interviews, um, I realized that kind of where the action was, where the controversy and concern was, was around Uh, families uh, with kids with food allergies. So kind of shifted gears a little and and started getting uh, in touch with food allergy advocates, especially parents of food allergic uh, children um, and uh, going to these more kind of family and parent um, centric events and and kind of shifting the interview strategy for that as well. Um, So um, and you know, kind of initially I was interested in in how folks were taking up expert knowledge and applying it in their own lives. Um, so what do you do when you get a positive allergy test? Um, what can your doctor give you advice about and what can't they? Right. Um, doctors can give advice about medical things, medical interventions like shots and pills and uh, uh, um, epinephrine auto injectors if you have an allergic reaction, but they don't have a lot of advice to give about how to modify your kitchen or how to modify your diet in really practical ways or how to read a food label or how to call up a food company and see if your uh, cornflakes might have come in touch with any peanuts, right? So there, mm. there are sort of layers of practical Um, life experience, not to mention dealing with schools and daycares and sports teams uh, for folks with kids, layers of practical experience where people are really on their own. And there's um, built up, uh, you know, a robust kind of uh, parent support and advocacy network around some of these issues. Um, And that advocacy has now gone to uh, state houses and to the White House to advocate for, um, uh, for changing and or relaxing, depending on the state's uh, prescribing rules, uh, so the epinephrine auto injectors can be available. Hi, can be available for anyone to use in certain institutions like schools. Um, and uh, hi, yeah. Um. So. Um. And, and so, in the book, I was thinking a little bit more about, um, you know, how, um. Are we getting bored here? In the book, (laughs) I was thinking a little bit more about um, how some of the advocacy strategies in particular were shaped um, by uh, race, class and gender, Um, in particular, how things like class positioning and race kind of shapes advocates imaginations of what's possible. Um, and also how femininity and motherhood are kind of used as advocacy tools. Hmm. Um, and in the end, what I argue in the book is that food allergy advocacy is reproductive in all kinds of ways, in the sense that in order to expand, for example, the circle of people responsible for a food allergic child beyond just a mother, mothers have to perform motherhood and femininity um, to advocate for their cause, right? So you see um, many attempts to um, push the the boundaries of caretaking push the definitions of normal or healthy, um, but it often enlists um, the performance of certain kinds of normal, certain kinds mm. of healthy, certain kinds of femininity, uh, and and race uh, and class. Uh,
0: I cannot wait to read this book, and <laughs> um, I and on its own, but also because of how I'm going to learn from that book to think about what we're seeing with. COVID, and sure. um, in, in, in particularly around, and you have a concept that you um, introduced, you may have introduced it earlier, but I uh, first discovered it in an article you published in 2019, just before the pandemic, in the journal Catalyst, yep. uh, and this is the notion of the hygienic sublime, and I've thought about this uh, a lot uh, since then, and since we talked in 2020, because um, you know, the, the notion of the hygienic sublime is, you know, just as you were describing, it's, it's a powerful way to think about the extra work that goes into uh, making any sort of space, in this case where maybe food is being prepared, mm-hmm. um, making that space something beyond clean. I mean, something that achieves the status of the sublime, which is
1: mm-hmm.
0: ex- inhuman almost. Right. exactly exactly. Uh, inspiring almost, or oppressive, mm-hmm. depending on how you think of what the exactly. sublime is. Right. And that the work of that, Achieving the sublime, as you were just describing, um, is a is a form is a way of reproducing, you know, uh, motherhood, um, class status, racial identity, and mm-hmm. things like that. It's and it's been on my mind mm-hmm. as we've been through various different phases of home testing, sure, masks, um, indoor air, you know, purification, and the many things that go along with this sort of. Covid vigilance in the household. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to I wanted to sort of get an update from you on what you've been watching, keeping track of in the way that that notion of the hygienic sublime tracks onto Covid.
1: Sure. Yeah. And and um, that was a a wonderful definition of it. You know, the maybe one thing I would slightly rephrase rephrase is that when I think of the hygienic sublime, and um, you know, it's it's uh, the idea that um, the agency of of non-human things really exceeds the agency of, of humans, right? Um, and so we're talking when it comes to allergens or when it comes to viruses, we're talking at the sort of a, a scale that is unimaginably tiny, um, you know, as compared to uh, the kind of 19th century, 18th, 19th century conceptions of sublime where um, w- what is in human... You know, the the sublime is inhuman in, in part because of its large scale. So we're right. kind of flipping the right. scale right. there a little bit. That's one way I think about right. it. Um, but I think it, and yeah, I think this is super relevant to, you know, a lot of the kind of hygiene theater, as some people have called it, um, of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. There's not much that individuals can do if politicians don't pay us to stay home. So we get obsessed with all of these rituals trying to control things that we can't see, right? Whether it's cleaning the, you know, food cans or obsessively uh, disinfecting our hands, right? None of that matters if we're in a space with shared air. It's an airborne virus. Um, but I, I think, you know, I think that there's so much of a desire for control um, of the environment, control of our health. Um, when things feel so uncontrolled that we turn to the tools we have, right, which are mm-hmm. hand sanitizer, disinfecting wipes. um uh, and uh, and so on. I think, um, you know, I think um, rapid tests maybe straddle the line between a kind of hygiene theater and actually useful. I mean, they're not nearly as uh, effective as PCR tests, but they can give you some indication if you're symptomatic, like, you know, whether it's likely that you have COVID or not. Um, if you're not symptomatic, they are not necessarily going to tell you very much um, because they need higher levels of virus yeah. to, to be able to detect it um so you know in some cases right if you're feeling fine and you get a negative uh uh antigen home test like that's probably just hygiene theater if you're symptomatic and you're doing it um you know that the, there might be something substantive there um and then you know i think with with matt with something like masks though right and there is really good evidence that masks uh, are highly effective for preventing Um, an individual who is shedding virus from spreading it to someone else because it's airborne masks interfere with air movement right Right. that's exactly what they're supposed to do even though that's why some people don't like them Um, but then the question is you know what kind of mask and again this is one place where policy in the U.S. uh, in particular um, has really kind of let people down right we've known from early on that N95s uh, and, uh, you know, KM95s and KF94s, that whole family of, of masks, depending on where you buy them from, is probably the most effective. Surgical masks uh, or surgical masks plus another type of mask um, is, uh, is also quite effective. And a cloth mask is probably the least effective. Um, but there hasn't been sort of policy. There hasn't uh, been very much in the way of government support uh, for the distribution of those, uh, supplies, especially the more effective ones. Um, so again, we're, we're kind of left on our own and, uh, you know, wearing cloth masks for Omicron, um, you know, is, it seems to be less effective than it was for earlier waves and wearing N95s for any wave, uh, would probably be best.
0: But I've been really wanting to ask you about the aesthetics, Sure. of the rapid test. Let me, so I'm glad you mentioned it because, um, so we've, um, I have some here because we're in Omicron in South Korea mm-hmm. and there were two kids in school. Uh, and for the first time in the pandemic here in Korea, it's not as easy to get a uh, PCR test. I mean, up until now you just went, they had them everywhere. It's like on demand and easy. Wow. It's a little harder now. So, uh, yeah. I have had to administer them uh on so few occasions now and so you go to the video to watch if you're like me to watch someone demonstrate how you do the test and you know i mean as i was unboxing it i thought of you (laughs) i thought well i really wish i had somebody to interpret all the different tools and pieces in the in the kit and of course with the demonstration video um it's 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 friendly. I mean it's it's meant to be it's straddling a very interesting line between being sort of diagnostic and science-y, but mm-hmm. also sort of friendly. And it's very feminized. Interesting. And and I was and I was wondering, you know, if you have immersed yourself in that in that sort of culture of you know, how these kits are marketed, how they're demonstrated in terms of who uses them. Is it sure. I, mean, I guess it's a simple question, is is it mom's job to deploy the to deploy right. the test?
1: yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So you know I, I the the ramp up with rapid tests kind of happened at a point when this one was keeping me pretty occupied, so it's not something I've looked at um a whole lot. I do find your description really interesting. So the only rapid tests we have in the house at the moment. Uh, is a box of five that a friend brought back, uh, from Germany for me. Um, and, you know, maybe this is different from what you're, uh, just, it sounds like it's different from what you're describing, but it's like a little, um, a little cardboard box, like this, this big, um, with just a bunch of medical supplies <laughs> inside with like no real aesthetic or order. And like, a you know, a, a sh- like 11 by 17 sheet with like the tiniest instructions in six or seven different languages. So maybe that's not the aesthetic of South Korean mm-hmm. and, uh, U.S. tests. Um, so, so it's curious to hear. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't have a whole lot to say about that, unfortunately, because I haven't been following it. But, um, you know, I, I know one use of the tests in New York City in particular is the Department of Education um, has been tasked with uh, distributing, I think, uh, uh, over a million tests. I think it maybe they, I think it was originally a million. I think they upped it to a, a couple of million rapid tests to uh, public school students in the city. It's about a million public school students. So initially, I think it was going to be about one test. Uh, per student, and and they managed to up that number a little bit, um, but um, but I think what you're saying about more work for mother, I mean, I would I would suspect that's the case. Uh, again, I haven't kind of gone out to investigate that, but you know, typically, um, you know, health and education tends to be. More work for mother, uh, and I would I would expect that this probably falls into the same realm. Um, of course, then the question is, is like, what next, right? If your kid has right. positive for a rapid test, so those aren't reportable in New York City or New York State. They even if you called up the health department to say you got a positive rapid test, they wouldn't accept it or record it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, WNYC reported. Uh, a couple of days ago, that um, you know there might be as many as a million or 1.2 million more positives from the Omicron wave than what we registered because of rapid tests that people uh, just took and then just you know assumed that was good enough and stayed home, right? And New York mm-hmm. City has eight million people, and I think registered officially around a million cases from Omicron, so it could more than double uh, if those rapid tests wow. um, were taken into account, uh, but they're not, um, right? Um, hi so there's a question of what do you do next do you report it then do you keep your kid home or not right um right. and uh you know you if your kid is sick then they can't go to school they can't go to daycare either you're probably not going to find a nanny or a babysitter who wants to take care of a sick kid especially not just for a day or a week um and um you know uh Maybe you have to go to work. Right. And maybe the safest place for that kid to be uh, is in school. So, I, you know, again, I don't have firsthand knowledge. I don't know a lot of parents of school aged kids, uh, but I, I do suspect there were um, uh, they were maybe not being used as a as a part of a comprehensive plan that was um, uh, really designed to limit spread. Right. Knowledge is different from action in this case, I think.
0: Let me ask you about your food allergy advocates. You know the the people that you spent the time with and doing your ethnography. Um, either specifically them or by analogy, what what can you say or what might you predict about um, you know school safety, COVID school safety advocates? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this is not going to be. Sure. This is we're not near the end of this, and this has opened yes. up. A a number of really vexing questions about when and how children should mask, how many kids can be in a classroom, and then a million other permutations of that. And so I wonder, you know, how you, you know, based on those groups that you spent so much time with who are, you know, advocating for, you know, real policy changes around food allergy, what can we take from that to apply to COVID in school?
1: Sure. Well, so this is a question that's going to get me flamed on Twitter. I wonder if I should just lock down in advance. (laughs)
0: we can skip it
1: a lot of these yeah i'm nothing i'm gonna say is gonna make school opening advocates happy and uh we we do know (laughs) that they do like to uh uh you know put targets on the backs of their enemies um but you know what i what i would say in general is i think i think the school so my book ends by kind of reflecting on the question you know if Advocacy—if health advocacy is reproductive, right? If it reproduces the importance or um, uh, uh, primacy of um, performing dominant identities, like you know, upper middle class, like mom who is selflessly doing everything for her kids, right? That, again, that's a kind of archetype that you often see: uh, upper middle class, often white mom. Though not exclusively, in, in that case, um, you know, if if health advocacy reproduces these dominant positionings and ideologies, then what next, right? Um, and I think, you know, I think a big part of it is the the kind of narrowness of U.S. political imagination, right? We see um, that um, that oh, someone's getting tired. We see that um, uh, in the COVID schools debate, right, we see that kids are staying home and uh, there's all kinds of issues with that from parents not being able to uh, work to um, kids not being able to socialize as much. And instead of saying, you know, what else could change in our society, <laughs> I'm tired. Instead of saying what else can we, we change in our society? We, we, we've all
0: been there. Yeah,
1: I know, right? Um <laughs> we look at the obvious thing and we say what can change in our schools, right? right? Um and so oh we could reopen the schools and it will fix all these problems in society, right? Yeah. Rather than having like even the tiniest like modicum of imagination and saying, well what if we, you know, closed restaurants so that schools were safer, safer, right? What if we continue child tax care or child tax credits uh, or expanded them? Um, what if we put some public financing uh, behind um, daycare um, so that when kids um, are healthy, their parents can make sure that they're getting as much time as they can to themselves to do work, whatever it is that parents decide to do with that daycare time, right, which doesn't necessarily need to be work in my opinion. Um, but instead of looking like Anywhere else in society, any of the, you know, any of the other places where schools being closed is causing issues. Um, it's just a laser focus on schools. And, right. you know, we have to open schools because we can't change anything else because society is the way it is. And um, and the only lever we have is schools open or schools closed, right? Incredibly narrow perspective, incredibly narrow vision right. of the role of schools, uh, of the role more broadly of care for children, um, incredibly narrow vision of Um, What children need, right? Children probably need both parents alive more than they need to have a bunch of friends in school, right? Um, And, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of children have been left without one parent or even uh, fully orphaned in the pandemic, especially um, uh, low income children and children of color. And I think that's the other, um, uh, the other piece to think about here, right? Is you know the imagination. Many of the people we see advocating for schools open opening, not all of them, but many of the loudest voices, are rich white women, right? In New York City, that's absolutely the case, right? On the national stage, that's the case much of the time. Um, everyone wants schools open, right? But you see in surveys um, again and again, right, that um, at least in New York City, that um, Black uh, and Latinx parents in particular um, want their kids in school, but they'll keep them home if it keeps everyone alive, right? Um, And so you also see this really pernicious gesture of, again, mostly, but not exclusively, White upper middle class women advocating for schools uh, to open, which is disproportionately uh, impacting children of color in terms of who is getting sick and whose parents are dying, um, but saying that they are doing it on behalf of those kind of poor black and brown children. Um, so it's it's really kind of the the worst kind of speaking on behalf of others um, that is actually having very concrete harms in the form of dead kids and children, uh, uh, dead kids and parents. Um, so you know, I I think there's. Um, both uh, a kind of uh, both a kind of general lack of imagination uh, in the U.S. around what is politically possible and what should be accessible to political or policy interventions, um, and also kind of a, my more pointed critique, right, is that this uh, is a tendency. Oh my God, she's actually falling asleep on my lap. <laughs> <laughs> that this is a tendency that, um, you know, perhaps... I have
0: that impact on my guests once in a while. I, you know, I can't help it.
1: <laughs> that Perhaps one group of people is, has more of a tendency to to do this kind of, um, you know, advocating on behalf of others when they don't actually need it uh, than others.
0: Let me just remind folks, you're listening to COVID calls and talking to Dania Glebo today. And um, so there's another piece of this I want to pick up with you, which okay. is uh, a sort of a perennial STS kind of question, but, you know, you're pretty attentive to, you know, public speech around science. I wonder, you know, this sort of idea that we should just be following the science to make these kinds of decisions that you were just talking about. Um, And, you know, I speak for myself here as a STS scholar myself, like I live and breathe critique of science and science culture and rhetoric and authority of science. And that there've been other moments in this pandemic, I was like, can you just please be quiet and listen to Dr. Fauci? Can we just give the scientists the podium exactly, right? for yeah. once? And then yeah. I argue with myself about this. Right. Where are you on this?
1: Yeah, I this is that's that's a great intro to this question, right? Like as STS people were so often critiquing you know the quote unquote establishment science, right? Um and to then feel sympathy for Fauci or sympathy for uh, regulators is, is kind of the usual feeling at times. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I often kind of reframe this for myself and my students is thinking about expertise, right? Um, and, I, you know, one of my concerns from the first weeks of the pandemic in New York City is that... Um, it's often scientists with the wrong expertise who are making calls on certain things. Right. So for example, uh, in the first, like, I think before the end of April, 2020 um, mayor de Blasio had um, appointed um, the head of uh, the public hospital system, New York city health and hospitals to the kind of lead of uh, COVID policy in the city. Um, He's a surgeon. He doesn't have epidemiological expertise. He doesn't have public health expertise. Um, previously, had been the head of the um, public health department, who had been in charge, but he was basically encouraging too many restrictions on businesses and too much masking. Um, so he was the public health person was replaced by a surgeon, who is still in charge. Right? Um, surgeons are known as the cowboys of medicine. Right? No doctor would trust a surgeon uh, to tell them what preventive steps to do, because surgeons see a sick person and reach for the shiniest tool, right? Like surgical journals are filled with, you know, case studies on 20 patients. uh, And and then that's enough data for certain kinds of instrument or for certain kinds of instruments uh, to get uh, FDA 510k approval. So then they're like off to the races, like selling it to thousands of surgeons based on 20 Patients, right? Like this is this is how surgeons operate. Doctors wouldn't trust surgeons with public health, um, and yet this is the situation that we have uh, here in New York City, right? And and again, you see time and time again, um, you see a lot of surgeons in charge. Right? Surgeons are, are cowboys, so they're flashy, uh, and um, you know people like to listen to them, um, but that doesn't mean that they know what they're talking about um, when it comes to uh, when it comes to public health. Um, you know, we've also seen businessmen in positions of power. Um, yep. So not even having the kind of medical knowledge, um, you know, there was that uh, amazing, <sighs> she's snoring now. <laughs> it's music. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, there was that, um amazing moment when I believe it was Francis Collins said, you know, we couldn't have predicted anti-vax sentiment know, because we I didn't know. have, right, because we didn't I have know. enough sort of social and historical I know. knowledge. I remember. And, yeah. And and it's like, well, you know, there's there's uh, maybe a good 10,000 of us. I was going to say, and, yeah, but, that was
0: the number. 10,000 10, STS scholars all <laughs> fell on the floor simultaneously.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah, And, you know, big open tent STS, like including historians and anthropologists and sociologists, uh, political scientists, if they're out there. Um, but, um, right, so time and time again, right, you yeah. see experts who are not actually experts in the right thing being put in charge. And so I think when we talk about following the science if we're following the wrong kind of scientific expertise, we're not going to get useful answers. We're not going to get safe policies, right? And I think that's how this has been set up from really early on. Um, And, um, you know, there are experts out there who have relevant knowledge in medicine, in epidemiology, and other kind of quantitative um, health fields, um, and in qualitative fields, like sociology and STS and history. Uh, And they're just not the experts that are um, largely being allowed in the room. So that's how I square the circle of being an STS person wanting more or better or different science, right?
0: Let me follow up on a part of that, which has to do with, I mean, so this is a disaster moving at a medium pace. It's faster sure. than um, climate change and slower than a hurricane. It's in some sort of meso level of time and unfolding which means we're learning a lot in real time about how expertise is formed and and exercised and then challenged and folded. And I've been really fascinated to see the different venues in which that takes place. Mm-hmm. Uh, op-ed pages, social media. Right. I mean, social. just to pick on social media for a second. I mean, social media is, has become a space where experts, as you were saying, have gotten out of their lane from being surgeons or economists and moved right into epidemiology and some of them have not left that space. Right. How do you, how do you account for that? I mean in other words how can you be wrong and yet still be right?
1: Sure. I mean I think I think this has to do with um you know who who is who is accommodating to to power and specifically to capital, right? I mean again I think in the US in particular mm. um it's about opening up to save the economy, right? And so right. Uh, you know and and we've um you know the the last like you know fed jobs and and economics report that came out everyone was really you know everyone in the Biden administration was thrilled because it showed that the economy was recovering and that the US economy has been doing better than any other economy in the world during pandemic during the pandemic um so you know i think people who are willing to prioritize capital and economic indicators over death and suffering um, are going to be embraced by people who are receiving capital from business leaders in order to get elected. <laughs> I, I don't think it's actually very complicated, uh, unfortunately. H- however, how we get out of it uh, is something that, you know, we haven't been able to figure out in my lifetime.
0: I think that's uh, that helps me understand. Uh, I hadn't thought about it this way, but the um, in the In the jockeying for more uh, policy power or more followers or whatever it may be, if your message was about reopening, if your message was about normalization, then you had more ability to transgress, and this, I'd like to follow up on this and test this, to to transgress um, boundaries that might have been a little bit more rigid before.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I again, this I have not studied this systematically, but it's certainly been my observation. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: I think that's a good hypothesis. I mean, I was just trying to think of a counterexample: somebody who came out of one sort of realm of expertise and actually grew their power as an expert during this time by giving that opposite kind of advice. Right. Like we should be staying home or we should we need another stimulus package. So I can't think of an example.
1: I mean, we even saw Fauci give up on any kind of precautionary right. approach. Right. Pretty much, you know, as soon as Biden <laughs> came into the White House, if not a little bit before. Right. And his excuse in 2020 was that you know, there needs to be some moderating force on President Trump. So that's me. Uh No longer does he seem to be a moderating force. Right.
0: So um we're almost up on time and I can see that our. Our co-guest today gave up on us a while ago, but that's, that's <laughs> fine.
1: very comfortable here. <laughs> My word's um, a little less than.
0: I wanted to ask you about long COVID sure. and your thoughts about, and again, sort of working by analogy from the, you know, healthcare communities that you've studied closely in allergy and the way that they um, form activist communities, the way they make demands. What are you seeing with long COVID that has you, you know, interested in or or is it not a good analogy to the to the allergy policy community activism community
1: yeah i mean i think the issues are 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 really different um Mm -hmm. you know the part of the food allergy activist uh community that i studied for example was a part that um kind of got along very well with doctors and and really took um, medical expertise and things like test results and you know medical advice. You know, acknowledging that it didn't cover everything they needed to know, but they they took medical advice really seriously and and really tried to integrate it in good faith into what they were doing for for the most part. Um, you know, I think long COVID. Uh, so it's so it's more of a more of a partnership or collaboration. I think uh, mm-hmm. in in my food allergy research than it seems to be in long COVID, where there there does. Again, seems to be getting better, uh, again, as an outside observer, Um, but it also seems like there's a a lot of, um, there's been a lot of, it's it's been an uphill battle to get Mm. medical professionals to recognize that it exists, to get interested in treating it. And again, my impression is there's not nearly enough providers um, with expertise in it or expertise in the various pieces of it um, to to provide care. um, Let alone, you know, the fact that we don't have a healthcare system in the U.S. um, that is set up to provide good care to disabled people, right? Namely, uh, or first and foremost, um, you know, most of our health insurance uh, infrastructure is tied to employment, right? Uh, and for someone uh, who's disabled with long COVID uh, and yeah. uh, very fatigued, right, that's that's kind of not a great fit. And, you know, there's all kinds of problems with eligibility for public health uh, health insurance, which I'm sure some of your other guests can speak to more uh, fluently.
0: Well, I'm pretty fascinated with this idea of a sort of patient-led Right. medicine model that's kind of been associated with with covid and and right. I, I, that was a pretty kind of a new concept for me mm-hmm. I mean I suppose historically it's been around in you know many different mm-hmm. uh visages over over time but I I wonder is that also something that it, you see maybe will gather momentum through long covid that's been stalled in other in other places
1: Sure. I mean, I think I think it's going to be inevitable. Um, you know, the like let her rip, open everything up strategy is going to yeah. disable a huge number of people, right? I I've seen I, I don't know how much credibility to place in them, but I've seen estimates as high as thirty percent of uh, people with Omicron Staggering. might have um, you know heart uh, side effects um, again. I don't know if that's, uh, that's the upper end I've seen. And I don't know all the data going into that. Um, but even if it's, a, even if it's, you know, 10% of that, even if it's 3%, that's a huge number of newly disabled people um, who need, um, who need different kinds of access to to healthcare and, and other social supports than our society is really set up to provide. Um, so I think, I don't know, without being too much of an accelerationist about it, right? I think right. maybe this maybe this is a thing that forces the needle for meaningful mm-hmm. reform on American health care. But at the same time, I wish people with long COVID did not have to be the ones to be self-advocating for it, right? I wish there was right. some broader political or social consensus that taking care of sick people is a worthwhile endeavor, Um Maybe this will get us there, Um, but I think the toll to get there, even if it does, will be enormous.
0: So we probably should wrap up, but I want to find out from you. So the book is like being printed somewhere right now. It's being boxed in a warehouse somewhere.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's Um, almost March. Oh my goodness.
0: (laughs) The other one, it sounds like it's almost done. So (laughs) what's next? Are you going to do a COVID project? What are you, what's coming? You know, Please do a COVID project. It's,
1: you know, it's tempting to do a COVID project, but there's also, you know, there's also that uh, that stay in your lane aspect to it, where. Got you know, it. I feel like I was kind of under the radar for a lot of COVID with the baby and um, a lot has happened. I don't know how much I'll be able to catch up. Also, you know, I think there are kind of new questions that have arisen for me around uh, digital technology and hmm. uh, and babies and early life. Um, so those are things I've been poking into a little bit. Maybe I'll circle back to COVID, um, but um you know, there's also the kind of emotional toll of um, kind of spending all of your time in the crisis that is also your life. Um, and um, that's, uh, I don't know if that's something I can do, but we'll see. It's always possible. Uh, but for now, for now, I'm looking at some other things. Uh,
0: just let me remind everybody, you've been listening to COVID calls, and you can usually catch COVID calls live at 7pm Eastern Time. Although for the next few weeks. You can probably catch COVID calls just about any time, day or night. We've got a lot of episodes coming up when we, till we conclude on March 16th with the 500th episode. And let me thank my guest, Dania Glebo, for making time to come back and for bringing your co-guest uh, today, <laughs> who is amazingly well-behaved.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah. Now we want to lay down. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much for having us.
0: All right, Dania. It's good to see you again, Take care, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.